guys can be seated. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Garrett. I work here at the church with the college ministry, and I'm very honored to be here with you guys tonight. And if you know me, um, I played golf in high school, and I played four years collegiately. And, you know, golf's not one of those sports that a lot of high schoolers want to play. Like 15, 16, 17-year-olds, they want to play basketball, uh, football, soccer, all those things. So golf's one of those sports that you pick up later in life. But when I was a sophomore in high school, um, you know how high school boys are. We love to pick at each other. We love to roast each other. And I was in the car rider line, and my buddies were just throwing bombs. I mean, they were like, golf's not a real sport. Golf's easy. I can beat you. You're not an athlete if you play golf. And now, back then, I was very uh, shy. I was a very timid kid, so I kind of took it all in, but I'm not that way anymore, so do not debate me on how good golf is. It's very hard. But back then, I was just taking it all in, and I was thinking in the back of my mind, I was like, you know what? One day, one day, they're going to want to be me. One day, I'm going to be on the PGA Tour making millions and millions of dollars, and they're going to want to be where I was. One day, I'm going to be a household name. I'm going to be the next Tiger Woods. One day, Garrett Smith, everyone's going to know my name. And that brought me back to a, when I was a child, I was always think that, you know, we, we always want to be the, the rock star. We want to be the guy on stage with the spotlight on us. Everyone's cheering our name. Our, we want to be the hero, saving the day in front of everyone, and everyone applauds our name. I wanted to be known. I wanted to be great. I wanted to elevate myself. I wanted people to know my name. I had the desire to be known by others. And if we're all honest with ourselves tonight, we all want the same thing. We all want to be known. We have the desire to have influence for people to know who we are. It could be that you want to be a social influencer or, or when, when young boys, we want to be uh, sports guys. We want to be professional athletes. We want everybody to know our name and, and prove ourselves. We want people to know who we are. And we can pursue many different paths, pursuing that desire to be known. And from reading the scripture we're going to explore tonight, the desire to be known is not necessarily a bad thing. The desire to be known is, can either be used for good or for bad. But what I do know about the desire to be known is that sin can come alongside it and corrupt it. I do know that pride can come alongside it and twist it. For me, when I was young, I wanted my name at the golf tournaments to be on the top of the leaderboard. I wanted me to pull up to a golf tournament and say, oh, that's Garrett Smith right there. And my whole identity was wrapped up in that. Pride can lead us down many different paths, and that's the main issue in the text we're going to explore tonight. The disciples in this story, they all had the desire to be known, and it was twisted and tainted by pride. All the disciples, they, they wanted influence, they wanted power, and it was all fueled by pride. Again, pride and our desire to be known can lead us down many different paths in life. It can lead us down to a life pursuing fame or wanting more and more money, neither which of those things can sustain you. 
It will, again, lead you to a life wanting more followers, more, more influence, more subscribers, and you will always be chasing more and more and more, and you will never be satisfied. Pride and the, and the desire to be known will also shape the way you interact with others. We see a group of people who do have influence, who, who are well-known, and we say, I want to be like them. I want to fit in with that crowd, and if I fit in, I will be known. And we change the way that, that we dress, we change the way that we talk, we change the way that we act in post to just fit in with the crowd that is known. This desire with pride will also cause you to elevate yourself at the expense of others. Think of uh, past dictators in world history. They all wanted more. They wanted more power, more land, more influence, more people to know their name, and they did horrific sins to get there. Even people like me, people that go up on stage and, and preach the word of God, we also have to fight this desire. We want more people to hear our message. We want more Instagram followers. We want more and more just to get the message of Christ out there, but we also have to fight the desire to be known. And now I'm not going to sit up here and be a Debbie Downer and say you should just sell all your possessions, move to Africa, and serve the orphans. If you want to do that, by all means, do that. But what I am saying tonight is that our desire to be known can be tainted with pride, and it can take us to places that will not bring true purpose to our life. You will always live a life wanting to serve yourself, wanting more and more, always climbing the ladder and tearing people down on your way up. I mean, look at the, look at the story of Satan. The Bible says Satan was the most beautiful angel in heaven. He was the choir director. He had everything he could ever want or need. And what did he want? He wanted to be known more. He wanted to be God. Pride got in his way and God kicked him out of heaven. And the cool thing is about Jesus is that, that he knows that we have this desire to be known. He knows that we want to be great. He knows that we want influence. He knows that it's just a, a natural humanistic tendency to want to be known by others. Is it good or bad? I really don't know. It could be used for good or for bad. What I do know, and definitely this desire can be tainted by pride, but this desire can also be informed by Jesus. Jesus can redirect our desire to be known in its rightful place. And when it's put in its right place, it has the power to change things for good. He tells us in the story we're about to read that he says, don't be known for these things. Don't be like the world and its rulers. If you are my follower, be known for this. If you are my follower, be known for these things, and you will have life, and you will have purpose. So we're going to read a story in the, in the gospel of Mark. I'm going to read it one time, and then we're all going to go through it verse by verse. That sound good? Yep. Let's do it. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45, it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came down to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Verse 36. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. 
You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Verse 39, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow. So we're going to dive into this verse by verse. And what's crazy about the story is actually what happened right before it. So just before this story with James and John, Jesus pulled all the disciples away and predicted his death. He lays out what is about to happen to him when they enter into Jerusalem. That's found in Mark chapter 10, verse 33. We'll read that real quick. It says, We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And again, this is, this is the third time that Jesus tells the disciples about his death and resurrection, because they're, they're still pretty confused about the mission of Jesus. And we can tell that James and John are confused by what they say in verse 35. They say, then James and John, the sons of Debedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So literally, right after Jesus tells them, hey guys, I'm about to die. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to die and resurrect, and the first thing out of James and John's mouth is, we want you to do whatever you ask. They didn't get it, y'all. So James and John, they're, they're pretty rough, hard-nosed guys. They, they were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. They were, they were brothers. They were, they were not afraid of confrontation. In fact, they would actually go look for com- confrontation. They would be like an unhealthy Enneagram 8, if that makes sense to anybody. (laughs) Like, they would be the guys to ask this question to Jesus. So they say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus, already knowing what he's going to say, full of grace and patience, says in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left and glory. Now remember what happened just before this. Jesus, for the third time, says, y'all, I'm about to die. I'm about to die and resurrect. And James and John have the audacity to ask him that question. Not, hey, Jesus, uh, why does this have to happen? Or, or, hey, Jesus, is there any way that you can avoid this? Jesus, we don't understand. Help us understand. No, they said, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. And there it is. There's James and John's desire to be known. 
their desire to have power and to have influence, to be great. This is where their pride is clearly revealed. See, back in uh, ancient days, the ancient rulers would have high-ranking associates sit at their right and their left as a place of honor and power. So when people saw them, they would understand, I'm not messing with that guy. I, I know that one. They have, they have power. So James and John, they wanted that. See, again, they were still kind of confused about the mission of Jesus Christ. James and John still had the mindset of Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. He was going to set up the millennial kingdom and rule and reign over the world. And when that happened, James and John wanted to be in power. They wanted to be in influence. They wanted to be known when the millennial kingdom was set up. Theologian John Phillips says they wanted the crown without the cross. They wanted power. They wanted, they wanted influence. They wanted to be known. And they were on a personal mission for honor and glory. Verse 38 reads, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Jesus was like, he was like, yo, y'all don't know what you are asking, You have no idea what this means. Jesus was asking them, can you drink the cup and be baptized with my baptism? What Jesus was saying here is he was saying, can you suffer with me? Can and will you endure harsh persecution with me? Jesus asked them, will you lay down your life for this cause? Verse 39, we can, they answered. Of course, James and John Again, had no idea what this means, so they immediately say, yes, yes, we can. And the rest of verse 39 says, and Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. So Jesus was telling them here, like, James and John, I know you don't understand this right now, but in fact, you will drink from the cup that I drink. You will be baptized with my baptism. You will suffer with me. You will go through what I go through. And what's cool about the story of James and John is when Jesus dies and resurrects, they finally understand the mission of Jesus. And they both become very, very influential in the early church. And they suffer and they're persecuted heavily. And actually, James is beheaded. And John is exiled to the, to the island of Patmos where he dies of old age. He actually wrote Revelation when he was exiled. So again, Jesus was like, James and John, I know you don't understand this right now, but in fact, you will suffer for my cause. You will be persecuted. Verse 40 says, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So Jesus was telling James and John that it's not up to him. It's not up to him who sits at his right and left. That is up for God to decide. And what's interesting about this uh, verse is Jesus says, these places belong to those for whom they are prepared. So we can infer there's some sort of ranking or reward system in heaven. Not ranking as we think of ranking, like one, two, and three, or one's better than two. Not like that. But it means salvation versus rewards. Salvation is free, but rewards are earned. 
So when we get to heaven, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, God's going to say, welcome into heaven. My child, you are in because of the blood and sacrifice of Jesus. But we're going to sit at what they call Bema's seat, where God weighs and judges what we did with the time, the talents, and gifts on this earth. He's going to reward us for the things that we did on earth. So God, he's going to say, welcome in, welcome in, my child. You're in heaven. You're here. I love you. But he's going to ask, what did you do with the time you had on this earth? And we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more later. But Jesus was telling James and John, like, it's not up for me to, to decide who sits at my right and my left. It's up to God. James and John, you still have time left on this earth. What are you going to do with it? There are places prepared for those who did finish well, but y'all are still alive. It's not for me to decide. Here's where it gets good. Verse 41 says, When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. I'm not going to lie, I did not know what that word indignant meant, so I had to look it up. Indignant means a feeling characterized or expressing strong displeasure at something unjust, offensive, or insulting. So the other disciples were, they were hearing James and John asking these questions, and they became upset. They became indignant because James and John beat them to the punch. See, all the other disciples, they all wanted their places too. They all wanted to be known. They all wanted influence and power. They all had the desire to be known, tainted with pride. So an argument probably broke out, and they were like, why did James and John get to ask this question? They're crazy. They're hotheads. They don't deserve this. And Jesus was like, okay, here we go. He calls them all together. In verse 42, he says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus was telling them here that Look at the way the rulers of that world rule over people. Look at how the leaders of that day think leadership is to lord it over people, to make others do their bidding, to elevate themselves at the cost of others, to flaunt and flex their power. That's how the rulers of the day ruled. He was showing them that, that pride alongside of the desire to be known can make people do horrible things to gain more power and more influence. I'm sure when Jesus was saying this, the disciples were thinking of King Herod. He was the ruler of Judea at the time. And when Jesus was born, all the scribes and everybody said, the king is here, the true king is here. And King Herod was like, oh crap, my throne is threatened. And King Herod killed every single infant in Jerusalem because he was threatened by Jesus. King Herod tried to preserve his throne and gain more and more power. His, his bloodlust for power to be known and to have more influence caused him to do terrible, terrible things. And sometimes our desire to be known, corrupted by pride, can cause us to fall into many different types of sin. I hope you don't go around killing babies, but we all do it. Myself included, pride corrupts our desire to be known, and it did with the disciples, and it does with the rulers and for us 
today. And what Jesus says in verses 43 and 45 are profound. It says, not with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus was saying here is that if you want to be known, be known for the way that you serve others. Be known for these things. Jesus really wanted to hit home with the disciples and for us tonight that being a true follower of Jesus, it's not about, it's not about lordship, it's about servanthood. Being a follower of Christ is about giving of oneself, not for personal gain. He was saying, if you want to be known, if you want to be great, be known as a servant. Be a slave to all. And the awesome thing is that we have the perfect example to follow in Jesus. Jesus paved the way for us to follow, and all we have to do is walk in his example. That verse says, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That means we were all bound for hell, separated from God because of our sins, and Jesus came to this earth and paid the price for us. He was on the cross. He could have called down a legion of angels to get him from that cross, but he said, no, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. So ultimately, Jesus was telling us here that we have to be radically different than the world. We have to be radically different in the way that the rulers of this world rule. That if you want to be known, be known for the way that you serve others. If you want to be great, be a servant and slave to all. And that's the only thing that can bring you true purpose and true fulfillment in your life. So we all have this desire. I love you says, if you want to be known, be known as a servant. So what does this look like practically? It means to, to take the posture of a humble servant. That's how we combat pride. And that redirects the desire to be known to its rightful place. Taking the posture of a humble servant. So if you want to be known, be known as a humble servant. And being a humble servant looks like three things we're going to explore tonight. It looks like submission to Christ, to live generously, and the way that we use our time. So to recap, before we dive in, we all have the desire to be known. I know I've said that like 20,000 times, but we all have it. We all want to be known. We all want to be great. It might not be a large-scale thing. It might be you want people in your town to know who you are. You want to walk into a restaurant and say, oh, that's that guy or that's that girl. We all want to be known. And Jesus is saying, don't be known for the things of the world. He's saying when people say Bobby, people say Bobby is a servant. When people see Nathan, they say Nathan is a servant. When people say, when people see Joseph, Joseph is known as a servant. We have to take on the posture of humble, 
of a humble servant. So the first thing we do to be a humble servant is submission to Christ. And y'all know what this means. We talk about it all the time here at the Hills College is that God wants your obedience. God's love language is obedience. Being a humble servant means we are daily becoming more and more like Jesus. That we have the posture of being up under the authority and the lordship of Christ. That we are saying, God, I don't care what the world says. I don't care what culture says or what my feelings or my emotions are driving me to do. I choose to follow you and submit under your word. Whatever comes my way, God, I will choose you. Remember what that verse says, verse 38, it says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Jesus was asking James and John, and for us tonight, will you suffer with me? Will you endure persecution? That's what being a, a humble servant looks like. That's the picture of submission, that when we endure the sufferings of this world and we endure what our flesh is urging us to do, we say, no, I'm not going to do that. Or I will endure this hardship because I am submitted to Christ. And we here in the United States, we don't really understand what true persecution is, at least. I believe it is coming. But remember, James and John, or James was beheaded, and John was exiled to an island. And why did they endure that? Because they were submitted to Christ. They had the mindset that, that Jesus did everything for me. He saved me from eternity in hell. I give my life to him because of that. No matter the cost, no matter what comes my way, I will submit to the lordship of Christ. And we have to have that same mindset. Of course, our persecution looks, looks way different than that of James and John, but we still face some persecution today. We still have the social pressures to conform to culture and what this world says, but we have to say no. We have to say, I am submitted to Christ, and he calls me to be different so that I can be a light to the world, so that I can cover the night with my, with my light. And we also endure suffering when we, when we battle against sin, because battling sin is not fun, and it's very hard sometimes. It's not fun to say no to things that your flesh is urging you to do, but that's what we're called to do. Jesus calls us to drink the cup that he will drink. That's the persecution. And to be baptized with his baptism, that's the suffering and hardship. And how do we do that? We have the posture of a humble servant. So the first point, submission to Christ can be summed up with a verse in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, verse 25 says, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Now, I love this verse because it shows that submission to Christ is actually the pathway to true life. You might be thinking, I'm not going to endure hardship or persecution, and I'm not going to resist the urges of my flesh because that stuff's uncomfortable. It's hard. But being a humble servant of Jesus Christ is not about your comfort. It's about submitting to him. Whatever it costs, wherever it takes you. 
Jesus never promised that this life will be a warm, cushy life. He says, there will be trouble in this world, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So when we submit to Christ, when we lose our life to find it, on the other side of that is true joy, true peace, true fulfillment. That is what's on the other side. That's what Jesus means when he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When we submit to Christ, we find joy. Are you joyless? Ask yourself that. If you're joyless, are you submitted to Christ? When we submit to Christ, we find freedom from sin. Is there a sin that you are struggling with? And all it's doing is bringing you down, down, down. You feel like you can't come to God, you can't come to church. When you submit to Christ, you find freedom over sin. When we submit to Christ, we find true purpose. We find that we are partnering with God on his mission to save lost souls. On the other side of submission to God, we find true peace. When we're submitted to Christ, being obedient to his scripture, the Bible tells us that we will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's what Pastor Brian said the other week. He said the opposite of anxiety is not peace. It's obedience. He posted that on Instagram because it was so good. So when we're obedient to Christ, that is a direct outflow of your peace. When we hold on to our life, we lose it. When we live in comfort, we lose our life. When we indulge in the sinful cravings of our flesh, we lose our life. But when we, we find it, when we submit to him and get under the authority of his word. So practically what this looks like is when suffering and persecution comes our way, we endure it like James and John did. We drink from the same cup that Christ drank from. And I, I believe it is coming, y'all. I don't mean to scare you, but persecution is probably coming in our world, in our country. But Jesus calls us to endure it, to endure it and have hope. When it comes our way, we put on the spirit of submission to Christ. Submission to Christ also looks like becoming more and more like Jesus every day and losing your life to find it. It means every single day we are crying out to the Holy Spirit and asking him for help to resist temptation and to overcome sin. So when the desire to lust rears its ugly head, we say no. When the thoughts of worry become in your mind, you say no, I am submitted to the word of God. I'm strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. I will not take part in this. That's a decision you have to make right here. You have to make that decision in your mind to say, I am submitted to God. I will not have part in this. I'm not going to do this because I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of the one true king. I will not take part in this. That should be our mindset, guys. It'll give you power over sin. It'll give you peace, joy, all the things that Jesus promises us in his, in his word. So you want to be known? Be known as a humble servant. How do you do that? Submission to Christ. You endure trials and sufferings and persecution, and you submit under the word of God and become more and more like Jesus every day. 
lose your life for his sake so that you can find it. Maybe you're sitting in here and you feel like there's no purpose in your life. You have no joy, no peace. I ask you, are you submitted to Christ? Is there a mindset in your mind that says, no, I'm not going to take part in the world. I'm submitted to Christ. On the other side of that is true life, y'all. Please believe me in that. Second thing we can do to be a humble servant is to live a life of generosity. Now, I know what you're thinking. When you hear generosity, you think of money. And you might be thinking, oh, he's going to talk about money. All the church wants is my money. No, it's not true. Living a life of generosity is not about money, but it mostly is, so we're going to talk about it. But what's crazy about uh, money is Jesus actually talks about money more than any other topic in the Bible. And I think if that's the case, we should listen. This scripture is not up here, but 1 Timothy 10 says, 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now notice he didn't say the love, or he didn't say money is the root of all evil. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. And by all means, Jesus is not saying we should not want money. Again, money is kind of one of those neutral things, like the desire to be known is need to be used for good or bad. Within itself, that desire is not bad. But it can get out of place when we love money. Scripture says it is the root of all kinds of evil. People have done many evil things to get more money. It says people have wandered from the faith for their love of money. I don't really know what that means, but that's kind of scary. People literally have wandered from the faith because they loved money. And they've pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, that could be a whole sermon within itself, but we're not here to talk about the dangers of money or wanting more or loving money. I think we should just trust God and not walk down that path. But the way you combat the desire for the love of money and the character of a humble servant is to be generous with their money and possessions. 1 Timothy 6, verse 18 says, Paul was speaking here to the wealthy people of the day, the people who had a lot of money, and if you live in the United States, I promise you're wealthy. Ask Joseph right there. He knows. If you live in the United States, you're very wealthy, you're very blessed. But Paul was speaking to the people who were actually wealthy that day. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Proverbs 11, verse 25 says, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. I love that verse. But again, money is those, one of those, those neutral things. It can be used for good and bad. And my friends, your money can greatly impact the kingdom of God and help those around you. Now, the church, the call to be generous has nothing to do with our tithe. The tithe is the 10% you give to the local church. Our church preaches on this every January. This is a part from the tithe. You should be doing the tithe. You should be giving 10%. Being generous is apart from this. So if you're not being generous, start with the tithe, and then you can be generous. But being generous looks like, again, apart from your tithe, using your money to impact the kingdom of God. 
and helping fellow Christians to help those in need. It could be donating your money to a Christ-centered pregnancy shelter. I believe now that Roe v. Wade being underturned, the, the American church needs to step up and care for single mothers. They need to step up and care for adoption agencies and orphanages. We need to step up and be generous with what we have. It could be uh, being generous, leaving a generous tip to a waiter and saying, how can we pray for you? Or can I share the gospel with you? What's your story? And look, I know that this ain't easy, y'all. Money is a, is a tough topic, and it's even harder to let go of your money. And I know most of y'all are probably broke college students. I was there. I know it was hard. But when it comes to being generous, you have to get creative with it. Let's say that your friend has two flat tires, and they can't afford it. And you definitely can't afford it, but you want to help. Being generous means getting a group of people together and say, hey, there is a need that we can meet, and we will all help you. You got to be creative. Being generous sometimes looks like a group effort. Speaking of a group effort, I love the picture of the early church in Acts chapter 2. This is right when the church started. Y'all read this. This is powerful. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So that means they shared their food. They shared what they had. They said, there's some leftovers here. You have this. Nobody was hungry. It says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And the believers were together and had everything in common. Listen to this. This is crazy. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Y'all, isn't that powerful? Isn't that crazy? That is what we are called to do. That is what the church should look like today. We need to look around at our fellow brothers and sisters, and if there was a burden or a need, we need to be generous with what we have to help them. And like I said before, being generous is not always about money. It's about possessions as well. It could be uh, giving a ride to somebody who does not have a car or giving somebody a place to crash when they're in a time of need. I don't know what it looks like, but a humble servant is a generous person. They have, they have the mindset of, God, you gave me all these things. You gave me the ability to make money, to have these things. I'm going to help others and build the kingdom of God and help those in need. And by no means, y'all, listen, I am not preaching the prosperity gospel. Like, y'all know me, okay? I would never preach that. And if, if you're listening to those pastors and those churches, run for the hills, that's heresy. But y'all, when we live a generous life, it always has a way of coming back to us. Again, when we think with our American mindset, we think it means financially, but no. That verse in Proverbs says, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. When we live a generous life, y'all, it opens the hand of God upon our lives in many different ways. That's the power of the tithe. But also being generous opens God's providence and his hand onto our lives, and he will bless us and reward us. And again, I'm not saying prosperity. Please don't hear me when I say that. But God will refresh those 
who refresh others. It could be an emotional need. It could be a physical need. It could be, I don't know what it might be, but God promises to refresh those who refresh others. And this is how we, we, uh, we store treasures in heaven. And I'll dive into this more in the end, but Scripture tells us that everything on this earth will pass away and we'll be able to store ourselves treasures in heaven. And how we do that is that we live a generous life. We share what we have. We, we meet needs for those around us. So a humble servant lives a life of generosity. He or she is a, is a generous person. A humble servant looks at the world around them and uses what they have, the possessions and the money they have, to help others and to build the kingdom of God, to help their fellow Christians and the unbelievers as well, to help anybody in need. And it, I promise you, it always has a way of coming back to you. Not a, I give $10, I get $100. No, that is heresy. But it always has a way of coming back to you. So the second thing, a humble servant is a generous person. The third characteristic of a humble servant is someone who uses their time to serve others. And this looks like two things. is serving in the local church and spreading the gospel. And really, there, there's more ways we can serve others, but we're going to just hit these two tonight. And listen, I know that everyone in here has 24 hours in a day, and we can't do these things all 24 hours of the day. We have jobs. We have classes to go to. We have errands to run. We want to chill and rest. I get that. But where your time goes reveals what is important to you. Where your money goes reveals what's important to you. That's where your heart is. But what I am saying is during your normal work hours or, or your class hours in the gym or with your family, you can start incorporating these things. So the first one, in, in my opinion, is one of the most important is serving in the local church. That verse we just read said Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And all throughout scripture, it says every single one of us in here have different spiritual gifts. And what those gifts were meant to do was to build the local church and to serve others. That's your purpose in life. You might be in here feeling like you have no purpose. There it is right there. It's right in front of you. That's your purpose. I'm here to tell you now, you do have a purpose. You, 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 you matter. God's given you different spiritual gifts, gifts that I don't have, things that I can't do to build his kingdom and to serve in the local church. And y'all, when, when you serve, it not only uh, builds a local church, but it, but it changes you as well. Every time you serve, you are putting on the character of Christ more and more and more each and every time. It brings joy to your heart and gives your life true purpose, and it gets your heart more aligned with God. And y'all, serving's fun. Like here at the Hills College, like if we're putting up drapes, we're going to have fun doing it. My boy Claybo, he's a dog over there. He puts all these drapes up every week. We have a fun time doing it. It's fun. Serving is where you build those relationships. It's where you build your community, where you build those, those friendships that will last a lifetime. It makes you part of something that is bigger than yourself. 
So maybe you're in here and you, you feel God calling you to serve. You, you might be a little hesitant. You might be scared and you haven't taken that step. But y'all, serving in the local church is not about, oh, it feels right or, oh, I'm waiting on the perfect opportunity. No, serving in the local church, you just dive in. You just do it. When Pastor Bill, when he had 32 people at the small building in this church, he said, everyone here will have a job. He means everyone will serve to build the local church. If it wasn't for, for my parents, my mom right there, if it wasn't for her encouraging me to be a middle school small group leader like three years ago, I would probably not be on this stage right now. Middle schoolers are crazy, y'all. But it was fun. So when you serve, I promise you, it's one of the best decisions you will ever make in your life. The church and the Hills College, we have so many areas that you can serve in. Here on Thursday, we have the set, set up and breakdown team. And it is a proven fact, guys, that the more chairs you pick up, the more attractive you become to women. I promise you that. My boy Joseph right there, he can pick up like 20 chairs. He's single and ready to mingle, y'all. <laughs> but we have the setup and breakdown team. We have the worship team. We have, if you have a musical gift, bring glory to God with it. We have the production team. If you're tech savvy, Connor Olds back there is one of the most tech savvy people I have ever met in my life. He's ducking down right now. But if you have a techno, uh, technology gift, use it to help run this thing each Thursday. We have so many other areas at the main church. If you love kids, serve in kids' world. It's, that's really fun. If you like middle schoolers, they're crazy, but serve with them. High school, a VIP team. There are so many areas that you can serve. But remember, a humble servant knows how to use his or her time. And a chunk of that time is serving in the local church. Christ came to serve us, and we are called to do the same thing. Serve, serving changes you. I mean, I look at Avery right here. Who he came here, nobody knew him, but he dived in, he got plugged in, he has grown so much. He's up here singing at Celebrate Recovery and here on Thursdays. Be like Avery. Be like Chelsea back there. Chelsea, you're not, you're not getting off scot-free tonight. She serves everywhere and she finds so much joy in it. Even though it's hard sometimes, we're not very organized, Brian and I. But she puts on a smile on her face and serves with us every Thursday. Be like Chelsea, a humble servant knows where their time goes, and they serve in the local church. A humble servant also uses their time to spread the gospel. Going back to there's only 24 hours of the day, hear me when I say this, you, you shouldn't just, I know you can't spread the gospel every single second of the day. I'm not saying only just, if you want to schedule two hours to go spread the gospel downtown, absolutely do that. But what I am saying is, with the people that you already know, the relationships that you already have at your workplace, at school, with your, with your family, use that time to spread the gospel. When you're in class, strike up a conversation with somebody you don't know, build a relationship with them, be their friend, and then share the gospel with them. If you're at a family barbecue and you know your aunt does not believe in Christ, go up to her, talk to her, Ask her her story and actually listen. 
We all, and myself included, have a problem listening. Ask them their story. Ask them questions. Listen, and then share the gospel with them. Basically, what I'm saying is start incorporating sharing the gospel into your daily routines, into your daily relationships, what you are already doing each and every day. And what's so important here is that that your character reflects that of Jesus. Like you have no business sharing the gospel if your, your character does not line up with Christ. Think about it like this. If, if you're an unbeliever and, and somebody comes up to you and starts talking about Jesus, but, but you know that person does not act, dress, talk like a true follower of Christ, well, they probably won't listen to you. So you have to put on the character of Christ. It's all about submission. Your character should match your message. To live like Jesus. Share the gospel with those around you. Spend time building those relationships, listening to people, asking people their story, and then share the gospel with them. Incorporate it into your daily routines. And if you want to take a block of time, two hours, and go downtown and share the gospel, absolutely do that. But a humble servant knows how to use their time, and a large chunk of that time is spreading the gospel with those around you. Now to recap, we all have the desire to be known. We all want to be great. We want people to know our name. The disciples had that desire. They wanted to be known when Jesus was in power. We have that desire. I have to fight it every day. But Jesus says, if you want to be known, be known as a humble servant. When people say your name, make them say, that person is a generous person. That person serves like crazy. That person is submitted to Christ. If you want to be great, be a slave to all. Take the posture of a humble servant. Now, why does this matter? Why does all this matter besides the, the joy that it brings, besides the peace that it brings, besides the, 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 the life change that it, it brings to your life? Why does this matter? So like I said earlier in my sermon, we're going to go to what we call Bema's seat. We're about to get deep theologically here, okay? So buckle up. If you're a true follower of Christ, you don't go to the great white throne judgment. You go to Bema's seat or the Bema judgment where God says, welcome into heaven. You made it because of the blood and sacrifice of Christ. You are in, my child. Welcome into heaven. But scripture says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, we'll throw that up there real quick. It says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Bible says that everything on this earth will pass away. It will not matter what car you drove, how much money you had in your bank account, it will all pass away. But God says, store yourselves treasures in heaven. We don't really know what that looks like, but there will be a reward system when we get to heaven. 
when we sit at Bema's seat, God's going to ask you, what did you do with your time on this earth? What did you do with the talents and the gifts that I gave you? Were you generous? Did you live a life of generosity, caring for others around you? Did you use your time to spread the gospel? Did you fight sin and submit to Christ? And scripture tells us that God will reward us for what we have done here on this earth. That changes your mindset about everything you do on this earth. What you do here will be a direct correlation of your rewards in heaven. Jesus, when he was talking about this, he's appealing to our logic, not our emotions. He's saying, if you do this, I promise to give you this in heaven. And it, it'll break my heart again. We will, there will be no sin in heaven, so there will be no envy or jealousy in heaven. But it would break my heart for each and every one of you in here to walk by the great rewards of the Apostle Paul and say, wow, I could have had that. To walk by the great rewards of Billy Graham and say, wow, he was rewarded. Or to walk by somebody like Connor or Zoe or Joseph or Noah or Peyton who serve in the local church and are generous. And you, you say, wow, I wish I was rewarded like them. God says, store yourselves treasures in heaven. And we do that by submitting to Christ. We do that by being generous with what we have, with our money and our possessions. And we do that by serving in the local church. We do that by serving and spreading the gospel with what we have. And again, that changes your mindset about your day, how you spend your time, knowing that everything you do has a direct correlation of what you have in heaven. God promised us to, to build us a, a mansion, a house in heaven, he says, I will reward you, my servant. And say, well done. Look at what you did. You were a faithful, humble servant, and I will reward you accordingly. So that's Bema's judgment. That's Bema's seat. There's also the great white throne judgment. And Nathan, I'm done. You can come up. That's the great white throne judgment. The believers, those who trusted in Christ, don't go there. But on the great white throne judgment, God will ask, ask you, did you trust in Jesus as your Savior? See, we all in here, we have a sin problem. In our sin, it separates us from holy God. Sin, uh, sin, Bible says, for the wages of sin are death, not just an earthly death, but an eternal death, an eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. And I love you enough to not tell you the truth. Our sin deserves judgment, deserves wrath, deserves anger from God, but God loved each and every one of you so much that he said, I want to take their place. He sent Jesus to this earth, all God, all man, living a sinless life, not doing anything wrong, performing miracles, healing the blind and the sick, helping the sick. And he was put on a cross, not a victim, but a volunteer, he wanted to go to the cross for your sake. And on that cross, God poured all his wrath, his anger, his judgment onto Jesus Christ for your sake. We should have been the ones on that cross. We deserve eternal separation from God, but God loved you so much that he made a way 
you could be made right with Jesus. He paved the way. He's the only way sinful man can be reconciled to holy God. We're going to say a prayer in a second. And if, you, if you've never accepted that, if you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. This prayer we're about to pray is not a magical prayer. It's not a get your free ticket into heaven. It's saying, Jesus, God, I, I, I trust in your work on the cross. I am within myself cannot do it on my own. I within myself are bound for hell, but God, I trust in your work on the cross. I trust that your payment was enough for my sins. If you want to say that prayer, y'all bow your heads with me. Repeat it after me in your heart silently. Say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sins separate me from you. I know that my sins deserve wrath, deserve judgment, and there's nothing I can do to be made right with you, Jesus. But right now, in this moment, God, I place my faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid for my sins. He's the only way that I can be made right with God. God, I trust in that. I repent for my sinful ways. I turn from them, and I promise to follow you for the rest of my days. Again, all heads bowed, all eyes closed. If you said that prayer, I just want you to raise your hand. I want to see you. God bless you. God has a purpose for your life. He has a plan for your life. He saved you, saved your soul. If you said that prayer, you raised your hand. There'll be a few people right here at a table. You can, you can open your eyes. There's a table right here. If you said that prayer, just visit them. Say, I said that prayer. We want to congratulate you. We want to give you some information to start you right on your Christian walk. So go visit that table. I'll be over there as well. But guys, before we worship, let's pray one more time. Y'all bow your heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time and this place, Lord. Thank you for everyone serving here. Thank you for everyone in this building. Lord, I pray that if, if, if we want to be known, if our desire is to be known, I pray that it would be would be known for being a humble servant, that we would in our minds submit to your lordship, knowing that when we lose our life for your sake, that is when we will actually find true life. God, I pray that everyone in here, as much as they can, live a generous life, share what they have with others, and care for those in need. And I pray that we would use our time serving in the local church, building the body of Christ. God, build your church. And I pray that we would share the gospel with everyone around us. I pray that we would take on the spirit of a humble servant. And that would be the cry of our heart every single day. God, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Y'all stand, let's worship.